Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Nurse EpiPen. And I've got Dr. G-Spot and Panel Beater in the studio with me and some extremely clever doctors. Um, morning, Panel Beater. So you, <laughs> he's nodding. And G-Spot, how are you? Morning, Nurse EpiPen. I'm super excited for this show. And excited to be in the studio with people again. Oh, it's so nice. It's lovely to be sitting next to our lovely guests. Yes, indeed. And have you been burning the candle at both ends as per usual? I, I really have, Nurse EpiPen. It was a bit of a late night, so forgive me. I But I think I've had my up and go this morning and I'm feeling good. I know you've had your coffee, so we are going to be scintillating. Uh, indeed. And... Um, Dr. Mal, uh, Dr. Mal practices let us loose. I know. I said he was on radio <laughs> sabbatical on Twitter. I don't know what that involves, but I just made it up. So well, that's yeah. where he is. So he's overseas. What's that? I honestly don't know. I, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure he'll come back rejuvenated and ready to push those buttons better than ever. Indeed, indeed. So before we introduce the guests, I'd like to set the scene for today's show with some words that I found on Kemet's website, so Kemet Bozaglu, who's with us in the studio. And on her website at the MICRI, so the Monash Children's Research Institute, it says, science is about striving for excellence and making valuable contributions to our health systems and patient care. How about that? It's very inspirational. I feel like I need to update my own website, Kemet. <laughs> <laughs> I will fair. do that later today. Yeah. So we're setting the scene oh. about science and patient care and with two people that are passionate. Well, Indeed. we are passionate about our own health areas. Yes. but <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah. Very yeah. inspirational yeah. quote and show ahead. So I'm going to introduce Dr. Chris first up. So Chris Bain is an anesthesiologist. See, they've changed the name on me. Used to be anaesthetist. Now they made it harder to say. Jeez, even more letters. And I think that was <laughs> Dr. or Professor Paul Miles at the Alfred who made us change it. So anyway, well, hello to Paul because I'm sure he'll be listening in. Hi, Paul. <laughs> and um, so Chris is an anesthesiologist who works in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at the Alfred Hospital. Chris was originally from Christchurch in New Zealand and completed a degree in cellular and molecular biology at the University of Canterbury. I think this is the foray into what today's topic's really about. Before he studied, he did that degree before he studied medicine at the University of Otago. He completed his training in anaesthesia at the Alfred and over the last 15 years as a clinician... His focus has been on anaesthesia for people having surgery on hearts and lungs. But he's now completing a PhD in translational research, which is really, that means sort of research from the research to the patient care, transitioning, translating it. And this is his um, passion, specifically in the field of perioperative genomics. I think we'll get to understand that one a bit better. Um, aiming to learn how genes within the immune system affect clinical outcomes after major surgery. 
He's involved in genomic studies of large clinical trials in perioperative medicine, but in particular what he's going to chat with us today about is his discoveries in changes in and around genes that contribute to harmful postoperative inflammation known as perioperative systematic inflammatory (coughs) dysregulation. And I like the acronym. We can stick to the acronym, which is PIST. PIST. Okay. <laughs> I Not feel pissed. like I have that on a pissed. Friday night. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, got, I was a bit pissed last night, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so P-S-I-D, PIST. Can't wait to speak with Chris about that. Yes. So would you like to introduce... Of course. Kemet. I'm sitting next to the delightful Dr Kemet Bozoglu, who is a molecular biologist as well and team leader within the ge- neurogenetics group at the MCRI. Kemet's research focuses on understanding the genetics of complex diseases. Her research is multidisciplinary and has extended to a number of complex diseases, including diabetes, obesity, heart disease and autism, which we'll be talking about more today. She currently leads the molecular aspects of the Genetics of Autism project at the MCRI where she has developed an extensive stem cell modelling program enabling differentiation of patient-derived stem cells into brain cell networks. Using various fancy lab techniques, can't wait to hear more about that, she is beginning to uncover how alterations in our genes may be contributing to autism. My goodness, what excellent guests we have on today. We're going to get autographs. Absolutely. (laughs) Selfies, autographs, the works. And it's going to be good on our side. To have been with I, I, I think it will damage their CVs irreparably, <laughs> but for us, yes, definitely a step up. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Hopefully we have time for two new stories. First question I'm going to ask you, Nurse EpiPen, is have you ever seen the TV show Seven Up? Yes, of course. Yeah. Course. <laughs> yeah they're all 60 now. <laughs> yeah, I think the last show they did was 63. So for our listeners who don't know this show, they followed a group of folks in England from the age of seven every seven years, and now they're 63. My goodness. And I think it's so interesting that we look at these people at seven and then try and predict what their lives might be like. What do you think, um, Nurse EpiPen, you might have said at age seven, how your life might have turned out? I think I wanted to be a horse rider. Oh, wow. Seven. I wanted to be a mermaid. It's not going so well. Um, (laughs) But I love swimming, so I feel like that is held true. But I'd like to briefly tell our audience about a super famous study coming out of Finland by Kekalainen et al., published in Psychology and Health. They examine the role of socio-emotional behaviour in children in relation to physical activity, smoking, alcohol consumption and body mass index from age 8 to 42 years later, so up to the age of 50. Holy smoke. Exactly, a very long study. And what they found was that world-controlled behaviour in girls, indicating a tendency to behave kindly and, um, and constructively, predicted more physical activity in middle age. So that world-controlled behaviour at age seven, looking like some good exercise outcomes at middle age. Social activity, which was um, 
I suppose, an eagerness to be involved in social situations actually predicted heavier alcohol consumption in girls and smoking in boys. I know. They're on to me. I know. <laughs> there you go, Pen. Oh, um, so, yeah, those little social seven year olds or eight year olds, goodness me. But social activity in girls and well controlled behaviour in both girls and boys predicted better school success in adolescence and higher education achievement. So, social activity is not all bad, but it does mean you booze and smoke up. Um, <laughs> and higher educational achievement was linked in turn to smoking and alcohol use. So, isn't that quite That's interesting? Very, and I, I can't wait to see what happens more with this group in Finland. And Finland, they, their health system is fantastic, isn't it? They've it got is. amazing. They've got registries and people are, the minute they're born, they mm. get logged into these health systems Gosh. and they can follow and monitor people yeah. forever. Wow. It's part of the government funding. It's incredible. Very, very cool. We need yeah. to start our own studies here, I think. Yeah. Might write an NHMRC grant this afternoon. Well, uh, we, we, could, could, we could co-author. There's three of us Absolutely. Here that... The radiotherapy team. We're, we're all CIs on this one. And I'd like to quickly talk about another story that has come across my desk with an election coming up. Dun, dun. Yes, indeed. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to May 21st. Um, Nurse Penny, <laughs> Nurse EpiPen, sorry, have you ever stretched the truth on like a professional document? A oh, professional document? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> I have. Care to was, tell us no, more? No, no, no. It was on a report. Okay. To, just for a funding body and I have to yeah. do something. I hope they're not listening. Just for a funding body. <laughs> I didn't quite. The numbers wouldn't add up. Sorry, (laughs) this just gets worse. (laughs) Drop me to keep going with the story. So I did it four or five times, and then I just and then it was sort of look, a patient here or a patient there was only one or two out. So, but it wasn't for a publication. Oh look, now you've dobbed me in. Look at us. Okay, I'm sacked. Okay. So it's been nice knowing you, Nurse EpiPen. Um, <laughs> Are you, when you prepped me for that question, I thought you were going to ask me if I overstretched the truth. Oh, that's... In general. So in general it sounds like it's even worse. So I'm not going to ask you that, Nurse EpiPen. But I think, I think who of us has not stretched the truth just a little bit on, say, a CV or something like that? I think we all do that. On a CV? No? Oh, <laughs> done that just um one, not, one report i meant everyone but me um <laughs> <laughs> so they've done some great research um helgerson et al in the journal of personality and social psychology if people want to check it out and they found that people may be more willing to condone statements that they know to be false and even spread misinformation on mm. social media if they believe those statements could be true in the future So what they did in this study was they uh, researched 447 MBA students from 59 different countries and they were asked to imagine a friend who lied on their CV about um, having a statistical skill. And then they asked to consider if this friend enrolled in a summer course to learn this statistical skill and asked, you know, how bad do you think it is that this person lied on their CV? And they found that those who were told that their friend would do the um, the course over summer were far more accepting of it. Right. Even though it's technically false. Right. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Exactly. So I think it shows how, I suppose, misinformation might spread on social media, particularly in this, I suppose, um, heavily political climate that we're leading up to, that people may be stretching the truth a little bit because they believe it might actually be true in the future. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I just think we have to be so careful about what we say nowadays, especially. Indeed. But especially in, if you're in front of a microphone <laughs> on a live radio oh, show. No. Oh, yes, because yeah, we all know a politician that said something that flared up the media. And indeed, yeah, I have to. I have to be very careful. I'll just only suicide myself. Only kill myself. Okay. <laughs> And, of course, you ring Lifeline on 13 11 14 if you're feeling like Nurse EpiPen does at the moment, folks. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Look, I'm just going to go and throw my head in the noose again with this, a joke. <laughs> Are you sure you want to, Nurse yeah, no, I've got to get it over and done with. Okay, just, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready. I've been fine about the introduction and the show, but the joke it stressed me last night. Okay, so <laughs> That I've... sounds just like humour, doesn't it? <laughs> really stressful. So I've had an operation on my ankle recently and I overheard a patient sitting next door in the room and he was saying to his partner, do you know, before my surgery, the anaesthetist said I could be knocked out with gas or he could hit me over the head with a canoe panel, paddle. So I guess that was an ether or situation. Boom, boom. <laughs> That's for you, Paul. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay, where are we going with this now? So I think we're going to chat with Chris. And what have I got? Some my questions for Chris. Chris, I'm intrigued with how you became interested in your PhD topic. But before we go there, please can you tell us a bit about yourself? Thank you very much, uh, Nurse Epi Penn. Where does one start? Um, I had an enormous fascination with genes and genetics and molecular biology at school and that took me on a journey to study molecular biology at university and then when I entered medicine I thought one day I'm going to I'm going to bring that back into my life and so about 10 years ago I met Kemet here and we sort of I joined her lab and started to sort of reinvigorate my knowledge of the science of molecular biology and learning all about genes. And that's led me to this point today. Um, of course, I'm an anesthesiologist and <laughs> I spend all my time looking after patients having surgery. Um, but in the background, I'm sitting there thinking about genes and how they might be interacting with their outcomes. So that's sort of the science-y side of the story. Uh, and, and why anaesthetics? How does molecular biology go to anaesthetics? Um, well, of course, you know, we're all um, made up of cells and genes and we interact with our environment and anaesthesia is an enormous impact on our biology and our body. It puts us into a state of sleep and then, of course, or a deep uh, amnesia and anaesthesia and then um, we wake up afterwards having had major surgery. There's an awful lot going on in that time and it involves our genes and, and the and the 
molecular systems within our um, within our body acting and responding to that. And so um, we don't see it immediately on the surface, but um, I believe it has a, a an effect on how we respond to surgery and how we recover from surgery. Wow. Wow. So have you... With, when you've been in, um, looking after patients after an anaesthetic and possibly following them up in intensive care, what what sort of what's been going on for them? Why might some of these patients end up in intensive care? So all major surgery, um, has, the minute that a patient undergoes an operation, their body immediately starts to respond to that surgery. It's called the surgical stress response and it starts the second surgery starts. The more major the surgery, the larger the response will be. For most patients that have major surgery, the response is uh, rapid and then it starts to resolve pretty quickly. But for some of our patients, the response continues and they need more support, including occasionally intensive care. It's completely predictable in, my, in, in some patients, but in other patients it's completely unpredictable and surprises all of us. And so that's the variation we see in the stress response. It's, it's, if it doesn't for one second suggest or undermine the importance of major surgery in looking after our patients and looking after people. The sort of diseases and conditions we look after with major surgery are only treatable with major surgery. But for some of our patients the journey in recovery will be prolonged as a result of their stress response. And part of that response that I'm interested in in particular is inflammation and how that affects our recovery from surgery. And that's the thing that I've been trying to understand at a sort of gene level and how the cells of the immune system um, generate an inflammatory response and how that affects our outcomes after major surgery, and particularly in this particular work, major abdominal surgery. Oh, my gosh. You've bitten into something quite colossal, I have to say, because there's so many factors. I'm sure our listeners can be thinking about how people um, recover from major surgery, things like age and sex and whether they smoked. And I have a, one of the things I heard about that the anaesthetists do, uh, I'm not sure at the Alfred, but I had to have some surgery at St Vincent's, and they were talking about this new way of preparing patients for major surgery, especially heart and lung, with these pre-op appointments. So they'd meet with an anaesthetist and go through a pre-op program, so losing weight, getting some more exercises, so that they're in the best fittle before they go into their operation. And that must be an... That's been shown to be really important, losing weight and exercise. It's are we looking at patients that have had that sort of pre-op in an elective operation situation? Is that something that's that happens for some of the patients that you're referring to? So certainly meeting the people involved in looking after you and getting a lot of information about surgery so you understand what's happening and about anaesthesia for your surgery is really important. It also... It also means that you're more relaxed about it, you know what to expect, and you can appreciate that there's a lot of different pathways that each, each of us can go, uh, having had major surgery. Being well before surgery is really important, and so it's important that you do things and avoid the things that make you unwell and do the things that keep you well. So if you're able to exercise, do get some exercise. Eat well, try and, get your, try and, have, try and have good sleep, and... 
get yourself in a state of mind and comfort ready before surgery. Having said that, the things we're talking about are not 100% predictable. Obviously, the factors that you talk about, age, sex, comorbid diseases and those sorts of conditions can affect predictably the way you're going to go. But some of us will also have unexpected experiences that result in us needing more support afterwards. That's completely normal and completely reasonable. And it's not your fault. Sometimes it's just going to happen. And no matter what you do to prevent it, it, it can still happen. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong or that anyone else has done anything wrong. The question is, what I'm interested in is trying to understand a bit more about it so that we can perhaps potentially predict it more reliably or indeed prevent it if possible. Mm-hmm. Mm. And where do you and Kymet fit together? Where is this unique relationship um, working? How's that Kymet? Maybe you might need to say how you're helping Chris with his, as a supervisor in his project. Sure. Um, so as, as Chris mentioned, um, we met probably 11 years ago now. Um, and I remember the very first day that we met, we were walking down um, Royal Parade going to a student's presentation. Um, it was a master's student in our lab. And ever since then, we, you know, got on like a house on fire. And I guess we both have um, a, a really big interest in um, genes and how they might be linked to, to disease and, and outcomes and things like that. And, you know, we've always worked well together and we're not only colleagues, but we're really good friends. Um, and, yeah, Chris is quite the ambitious one. Um, <laughs> so he's... We wouldn't have guessed from his description. <laughs> uh, he's written... A few grants and has been awarded lots of money um, to do this fabulous research that he's undertaken uh, together with with me and, and Paul Miles, of course. Um, and yeah, I guess that's how we've um, come together in in the past. And yeah, I think we've still got many many years ahead of working together and discovering lots of fabulous things going forward to help people. Yeah, recover. is that how you recall it, Chris? Absolutely. Yeah. What she said. I, I come up with an idea and she says no. <laughs> and, she comes up, and she comes up with an idea and I go, okay. <laughs> and then Paul goes, what are you doing? <laughs> this sounds like very classic PhD supervisor, supervisee relationships, Chris. Is that how you think it's going as well? Well, this is my first and only PhD, so I can't say. <laughs> And how far into it are you? I'm in the final year, so um, the work we're doing now is the, is the is going to be published very soon, and it's going to form the major um, sort of findings of the of the thesis, mm-hmm. uh, along with the sort of peripheral ideas and minor publications that were associated with it. So, mm-hmm. and how have you been funded to do this? So I've had fantastic support from the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists Foundation, the ANSCA Foundation, um, with successful project grants um, to to do all of my projects. It's an extremely supportive, um, extremely supportive foundation for fellows of the college applying um, to do research, and um, and it's been very supportive for me. So, wow, great, great. I have to say. That I know that you are parents, you've both got three children. How the Dickens have you juggled 
maybe Chris first and Carmen second. But how have you juggled all of this? And you're working full-time as an anaesthesiologist. Yes, so that's been a very, very significant challenge and you just have to um, be very organised. I'm more organised now than I ever was and that's a very, that's a good reason to do a PhD in many ways. It's forced me to to be very focused in how I use my time and that means that you squeeze more in. I have made changes in my, in my clinical practice and stepped back from some of the roles that I used to have before I started my PhD to give me more time and also to just integrate and balance things, sort of being a dad, a husband, a researcher and a doctor and it's a, a huge challenge and it doesn't seem to get any easier as the, as the days and years tick by, to be fair. And when do you finish your PhD? When's it? Um, so I hope to submit it in the next sort of few months. <laughs> so the one, do. the one question you don't ask PhD students, <laughs> Nurse Effie Penn, when are you submitting? No, but he could have I'm said by kidding. Christmas. True, true. Yeah, and then the drinks are on you and we're, over, we're coming over. Absolutely. So we've got three PhDs, people, graduates in the room here. Did you oh, want four. Ask? Panel. Four. Oh. Oh, you're, oh, you're not here, not yet. But oh, I think I'm going to have to do one. Someone talked me out of doing one. <laughs> well, well we, can, we can talk you into it now. <laughs> I feel left out. So um, in thinking about um, genes, and we're going to talk more with you, Kamet, after in a little while, but just um, are, are there genes responsible for controlling inflammatory responses? Yes, absolutely. So the immune system, our immune system is made up of the cells in our the cells of our immune system that are circulating in our blood all the time. Genes are the drivers of the immune response. They um, produce proteins that um, that drive our immune response. So they can be either in active states or inactive states. They are dynamically changing all the time. And what we've done with this, um, with this project is we've tried to relate changes in the activity of genes within the cells of the immune system in patients experiencing very different levels of inflammation after surgery. One group having an extremely high level of inflammation that's potentially harmful, and the other group having an extremely low level of inflammation who on a much who are on a different journey with respect to their recovery and distinguish those genes that are, that are very active and potentially contributing to that harmful inflammation from the genes that are very active in the low group but potentially protecting the patients from harmful inflammation, and that's what we've been doing. To uh, the group in, in the high inflammation group is this... Pisid group or pist group <laughs> that, um, that 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 we've defined for our study, and we have distinguished them specifically from the group that are having very low levels of inflammation. And what does it, what does a patient look like that's had major inflammatory response to an operation? How, what does that? What sort of conditions do they have? So sometimes they might have um, as they get. Out to a few days afterwards, they may have high, slightly higher temperatures. They may be uh, experiencing periods where their blood pressure is a little bit lower and their heart rate is a little bit higher. These are all well-described phenomena associated with hyperinflammation. But what we are discovering 
uh, and what's increasingly what we're all more increasingly aware of is that in the background they're also experiencing quite significant suppression of their immune system. And the combination of this process is a state of imbalance, which we're calling PIST or PSID, and that puts them at higher risk some days down the track of infection or inflammation-related or associated complications. It might be wound infection, it could be breakdown of of wounds or anastomotic areas. It also puts them at higher risk of higher heart rates and therefore potentially um, minor heart attacks and things. Or they may just need more time in a supported environment like the intensive care area to support their blood pressure. And that's something that we're trying to understand more about, not only at a clinical level, but also what's going on inside their immune cells when this is happening at the, in their genes. Mm-hmm. Because you know that I come from an infectious diseases background and we always think infection, exactly. especially with somebody in intensive care. So there's diligent about changing lines. Um, so um, lines that have pe- that are people connected to drips and things and that monitoring systems, they have arterial lines and these are all sources of infection and chest and blood and... Um, I'm sure, but everybody's so highly tuned to picking up these signs and monitoring them that the infectious diseases doctors that routinely go around intensive care are onto it really quickly, and they are brilliant at not leaving people on antibiotics for long periods of time. So uh, it's and wow, it's just so good about how they're caring for people in ICU after these sort of hyperinflammatory episodes post surgery. Uh, uh, G-Spot, you had a question? I did. I can't wait to see your PhD come out, Dr. Chris. Like this, um, this paper that you're about to publish sounds amazing. I just wanted to ask, like obviously, this, as you said, this does happen in some patients and not others. Who has the conversation with the patient prior to surgery that this could be a thing? Is it the surgeon? Is this conversation happening? I think so. I mean, I think a lot of, sur- I think a lot of patients, as they as they meet their surgeons, and particularly if they're having major surgery, and a lot of patients having major surgery, they're not in a position where they can choose to have it or not because mm-hmm. the, the importance of the surgery isn't in question. So all of this is about giving them information about what to expect. Most of the time, and 90% of the conversation is about reassurance because really the reality is that most of us are not going to have these things happen to us, but some of us will. So the conversations do have to talk about things like you could end up needing a period of time in intensive care, that um, you could end up needing it, you could end up with an infection or a prolonged hospital stay. Mm. Those things are all part of the conversation. But at the end of the day, most of it's about reassurance because the the condition you're having treated is really important and you still need to have that operation. Mm. Um, Are they aware of it? Yes. And everybody has a different journey and there will be always ups and downs when you, need, when you need and go through a process of involved major surgery. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Uh, and yes, anesthesiologists do talk to patients about it as well because mm-hmm. we're always in the back of our mind thinking, are there things we can do to prevent it, including timely administration of antibiotics, mm-hmm. potentially thinking about the role of other medications that might contribute to dampening down inflammation at critical times. We still don't know the answers about all of that. But these are the sort of things that are on our minds all the time in the mm. patients having major, major operations. Mm. Fantastic. 
And I, um, a tip for patients, if anybody's listening that's heading into some surgery, is when you meet your surgeon, have your list of questions. And if you're a little bit anxious, which, of course, everybody is facing surgery, have your list, run some of them past your GP, always have somebody with you because it's so much information that's given to you that you need somebody to remember and take notes. And, um, yeah, I think it, have, uh, I've had some major surgery, not only my ankle but something else, and I think I had about 4,000 questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they were saying oh, they were going to send me... So well, maybe narrow it down to, like, your top five. <laughs> yeah, top five. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and really, you have to trust the system. I mean, these uh, highly skilled people doing your operations giving you anaesthetics, I mean, and as Chris pointed out, the vast majority of people absolute well, all of them need it. You don't do these operations for fun. And I think being somebody that works with trauma patients, I've seen a lot of patients that have had these, you know, been really critically um, smashed up in trauma, car car crashes and what have you, and rushed into theatre and so many things are wrong inside and how they have to piece them all together. So this would be a part of your group, for sure. That there, but there's and then there's the controlled situation where you're having an elective operation, and you get the chance to ask the questions and possibly meet the anaesthetist. Um, and it's, uh, I just think medicine is always amazing. And people like you asking questions, Chris and Kymet, you know, Kymet, that just are fabulous and and we are getting so skilled at answering and want and getting funding to look at some of these things that it's really important but i read in the paper during the week about that young student who's been put through science degree and he's a researcher and the country <laughs> has invested over a million dollars in his training and he can't get a job so he's going overseas i just think well that's Go, an, that's an entire show. No, <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Got Dr Chris Bain and Dr Kimet. Um, and I did practice. Oh, Bozoglu. Bozoglu, yeah, thank you. So, oh, and I know that's a Turkish name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is actually. Yeah. Um, it's actually from North Cyprus. My, my parents are from North Cyprus. So, yeah, we do have a Turkish background. Um, yeah. Great. It actually means valuable. Oh. Kemet does. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that goes without saying. Oh, well. Indeed, indeed. So um, over to you, G-Spot. It's a great pleasure to have Dr Kemet here from the Murdoch Children Research Institute, MCRI. So Kemet, how did you choose the career path that you're currently on? Well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I love science and I love trying to understand um, you know, how our genes might, you know, contribute to different conditions. And, you know, I grew up with um, a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes and uh, kind of uncontrolled, so that was quite traumatic for me. So um, from a young age, I was like, I need to get into science and figure out what's going on. Um, So I did start my career in in type 2 diabetes, but Mm -hmm. then it sort of diverged into others because, as you know, it's all complex 
diseases and, um, yeah, lots of genes contribute to lots of different things and, and sometimes they even sort of interlink together. So yeah. really um, wanting to make a difference there um, to obviously not to my grandmother because she's no longer with us, but, you know, to the community in general. Just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it's a very meaningful pursuit for you. Definitely. And you describe yourself as a molecular biologist. What does that actually mean? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> sorry about that. I guess it's a it's a fancy word for lab geek, um, possibly <laughs> crazy scientist. Um, so I guess the molecular aspect of it is really delving deep into the biology of of, of what might be um, controlling our genes. So it's all around genes and function and pathways mm. and things like that. But really doing the nitty-gritty, you know, you see on movies, test tubes and, and, you know, different things that they, you know, use to, um, I guess, uh, take liquid out of different things and microscopes and that's all, everything that we do. So, yeah. Why do their experiments on TV always go so much faster than ours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they, you know, do some air pipetting. And, it's, you know, it's, it's, NCIS, run yeah. that DNA for five yeah, minutes. Take, take a blood sample and look at it on the microscope. It doesn't work that way. But. Okay. And, and just wondering, Kemet, if you weren't a molecular biologist, what do you think you might be? Oh, very tough question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, every time I get a grant rejection, I think, right, I need to think of a plan B. What is my backup plan? And I just can't think of, sounds really geeky, but I love science. And Mm. there's not another career I can think of that you can wake up in the morning and come up with a question and go to the lab and try and understand or, or figure that question out. It's every day is quite different. Um, and you know, the flexibility that you get, um, in science is just amazing. So I, I don't know of what else I would do. I mean, I'm good at making fancy cakes, but maybe not as a career. Well, that, that's chemical. <laughs> and that's the right answer, Kemet, for everyone at the MCRI listening, that even through a grant rejection, she is still thinking about her next experiment. She Correct. doesn't let it sway her. That's amazing. I actually saw a tweet and it said, um, I might do a PhD or I might go live in the forest. And I thought the forest sounded pretty good, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> And what does your day-to-day look like, Kemet? Well, um, every day is different, I guess. Um, But with what I'm doing at the moment, um, I'm looking at um, the genetics of autism and understanding Mm. uh, what might be the underlying mechanisms of autism. Um, So we know autism is a um, behavioural and social disorder, I get deficits in behavioural and social aspects mm-hmm. um, and we are very good at um, diagnosing patients on their symptoms if you like, but but those are actually symptoms and it's a consequence of the autism itself, so mm-hmm. it's not really treating the autism, it's treating the symptoms that arise, so what we're trying to do is really delve deep into the biology and understand what's going on um, that might be contributing to autism to, to find better therapies and, and you know, maybe delay, um, you know, these mm-hmm. deficits that might go on. Yeah. Um, no, so if you pay uh, for so, it. So it's something that's in the background of this conversation with both of you about genes. And if you identify them and you can see what they're doing and how they're playing up or, you know, working well, whatever, what 
are you going to do? What's the next step? Are there? Are you looking at drug interventions? Are you looking at how can we get on top of these naughty genes that are misbehaving, <laughs> and what can you do with them? What are, what's the bottom line of all of this? Yeah. Um, so. I guess eventually we will do drug screens. I've actually got a drug screen project going at the moment. So awesome. what we do in the lab, really geeky, um, so I grow brain cells for a living so we can take blood from a patient um, that has autism um, and we can you know, figure out what genes might be going or, or might be, I guess, dysregulated or there might be some malfunction in that gene uh, using whole genome sequence so we can sequence the whole gene um, or... or um, yeah, and then we can um, once we identify that, we can then uh, reprogram their blood cells into stem cells, so bring them right back to the start, and then uh, force them into becoming brain cells. And there we can look at morphology changes, so the way they grow, develop, and even talk to each other. So I guess our brains are like um, electrical cables, if you like. So there's lots of different. Um, signals going from brain cell to brain cell uh, and that's what helps us you know function on a day-to-day basis and we really believe that in autism there's a dysregulation in the way that this communication happens so by doing these experiments and and looking for drug treatments that may uh, ameliorate these um, deficits that might be going on with the communication aspects we can then sort of move that through to clinical trials and hopefully um, get that into the patients called personalised therapies. So that's the yeah. buzzword, yeah. Yes. I guess. So personalised therapies, these are for children once it's been diagnosed and help this, these pathways um, function a bit better. Is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, I guess we'd need to know what, what gene might be linked and then... Um, you know, with all the research that's going on, not just in our lab, but, you know, worldwide, we'll be able to figure out what pathways that might be disrupted and then maybe target those. Um, So rather than... So the current paradigm for treating autism is symptom management. So if a patient comes in with anxiety symptoms, we can give them medication. But, you know, there's lots of different types of anxiety medication. So um, it's it's like a trial and error cocktail-based therapy but knowing the biology of what's going on, we can then say, right, for your condition, this is, you know, this certain treatment is going to help you or your child, and we would go with that rather than doing a trial and error basis kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. I, I can see how why how you two get on so well because you've just got this incredible thirst for these enormous health topics, and because we all understand that autism has got a range of functions, so from really severe functioning kids to to tiny um, handicap or tiny symptoms that that's huge in itself and trying to navigate treatments and genes and holy smoke jeepers it's incredible. <laughs> um, thank you, Nurse Epi Pen, for raising that uh, because I was going to ask Kemet just how do you account for that because it's autism spectrum disorder yep. and as Nurse Epi Pen was saying, there is a huge range of symptom profiles. Are you finding any differences based on symptom profiles? Definitely. Um, so, yeah, as you say, it is a spectrum. So not every patient is going to come in with the same symptoms or the you know the same sort of features and I guess that's why autism itself is such a complex area to study because there is this wide range of different um, aspects of it so um, we are we've got multiple studies going where we can look at different aspects um, of patients on the spectrum Mm. 
and, and of course their treatments will be different and their pathways that might be linked will be different and the genes involved may be different. So, yeah, it's not a trivial task. Um, mm, and like, like Chris, um, I'm also a sucker for punishment and, you know, <laughs> like tackling the difficult questions. And just any differences based on sex as well, because we know that autism is presenting so differently based on sex. Yeah, so I think it's um, more prevalent in boys um, as um, they, they say that it's four to one. So for every four boys, it's one uh, girl that, that might be affected. We don't actually know why this is the case yet. <clears throat> there are some theories about it. It might be a, a genetic thing, you know, like a sex bias thing genetically. Um, they also say that girls are very good at mimicking. So yeah. they like to, um, you know... Do you think it's potentially copy. just under diagnosis of girls? Well, they, they do um, present milder than mm-hmm. boys do. And, and I think it is this because girls like learning behaviours from their, you know, superiors or people they look up to, whereas boys are like, no, nah, they're just into playing and they don't really <laughs> care about mimicking. So, um, you know, it, it could be one thing, but we, we don't know biologically why that's the case. Mm-hmm. And again, lots of studies are, are being conducted yeah. to, to really understand why it's more prevalent in boys than girls. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit more. You've mentioned before your stem cell work, but I wanted to give you the platform to talk more about that because it sounds super cool. And um, what does stem stand for again? Oh, <laughs> as in the other type of stem? Or stem cell, stem nice cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so stem cells are just... Um, I guess a nothing cell. So it's really brought it back. So that's what we, we sort of developed from, you know, um, when, when we're conceived. Um, so I guess you bring it back to, to the nothing cell, if you like, and then we can make any tissue we want uh, from these stem cells. So, you know, at MCRI, we're very good at, you know, stem cell technologies mm-hmm. and, you know, we can make kidneys and hearts and, and blood cells and, and lots of different um, cell organs, if you like. Um, obviously we're interested in the brain, so we do brains, we make brain cells for a living. Um, and, and going back to the genes, I guess once we identify uh, a disruption in a gene, we have technology now that we could fix that um, mistake in the gene and then we can grow them side by side. So we could grow, you know, the, the, the cells with the genetic mistake, if you like, um, and, you know, and cells that have the mistake corrected and grow them side by side together. Uh, we make brain cells and then try and figure out what might be going on um, and really really targeted um, sort of experiments to, to see whether that mistake in that gene is actually contributing to um, the deficits we see uh, in terms of, you know, brain cell function and development and, you know, and, and whether that's actually contributing to the autism. Yeah. And just jumping off Nurse EpiPen's other STEM <laughs> reference, it's wonderful to see a younger woman like yourself being successful in STEM, Dr. Kimet, Kimet, sorry. Um, and I know that you're a firm advocate in promoting women in STEM, so I just wanted to ask you about that work. Yeah, um, I'm very passionate in um, equality. Um, I guess being a, a female in science with three children, I guess, you know, historically that wouldn't fly as a career a choice. You couldn't have both together. It should, you know, it would have been one or the other. And you, if you had a family, it might be perceived as you're not, you know, committed enough to your career or, or you wouldn't, you know, be, be that leader. So I guess... 
it is changing now and there's a lot of work around equality, not just around around females in science, but um, gender and intersectionality in general. So, it, you know, we're here to do science and understand science and it shouldn't matter who you are or what you are, what your background is, you know, what your race is, what your colour is, what, you know, it, it, it should, everyone should feel comfortable to come to work as their best self and their whole self to do excellent research to make a difference to our patients and not worry about, um, you know, all the other underlying things. So there's a lot of work going on that I'm involved in to, to help, you know, get that movement happening more and more. Fabulous. Absolutely. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I, I want to keep going, Jim. I know. Dr G-Spot. <laughs> I know, Nurse Effie Penn, and we're just going to have to have our guests back. Oh, could we? Absolutely. Uh, uh, uh. Even if they say no, yes. they're coming back. Yeah, well, yeah, they might say yes. I think they look like we've got some smiley faces here. <gasps> we do, we do we for do. our listeners. So to wrap up, I would just like to thank um, Dr Kymet Bozoglu and Dr Chris Bain on enlightening us on just two of the most amazing topics, but this gene world that we're living in and where it's going, and you, I reckon you're always going to get funded, really. This is the new world, and forget AI, really. That's well, But you might be using AI's just, equipment. Just my entire research there, <laughs> Nurse EpiPen, but I think AI and genes can have a good place yeah, together. Yeah, your kit box could, box could work with them. I hope so. I yeah. hope we'll be collaborators very soon. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd like to thank Panel Beta for doing the buttons and G-Spot with her enlightening um, catch-up. And thank you, Nurse EpiPen. It felt like Dr Mal was not needed at all. Well, I'm just no. thinking he we, we've could replaced usurp him. him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he's gone. he's a bit too silly anyway. <laughs> Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.